Okay, we were just rehearsing the mirror stage and the production of the ego. And we want to get to something core here. It's not just that your sense of self is always split between the part of you that feels like the fragmented baby, the discombobulated, in other words, that feels like you're a mess all the time, and the part of you that aspires to be something different, that imagines yourself in a different place, that has a lot of ego, um, uh, egos that are other alter egos, you might say, that are ideal, that are perfect, better than you, that you might still become. We're always torn between these two things. How we feel, which is usually like a fragmented body, and how we think others are, which is coherent beings. Everybody else always seems to be having more fun than us. So you can think of it along um, fear of missing out. FOMO is a good example of this. On social media platforms, it's really typical for people to be scrolling through and seeing everybody else having a great time, looking their absolute best, right? Because you're not gonna post a picture of you looking terrible on Instagram. You're gonna post a picture of you looking your best, eating the best meal, not the slop you had for breakfast, but the fancy dinner that you made that night. Now, when you see that all the time and your whole feed is full of people having their best day, looking their best, wearing their best outfit, having their best meal, it's easy to think, God, man, everybody else is having a great time, living a great life, and here I am eating this slop, looking at Instagram on the toilet, wearing the pajamas I've been sleeping in for the past six days. You see what I'm saying? It's easy to live a fragmented, split-up life. That's how we are. So the split subjectivity that Lacan is pointing to on 286 is important. His subjectivity will remain split. This is one way that we get the Lacanian notion of the split subject. More complicated is how language participates in and really affects that splitting. Here we're seeing it at the level of the imaginary, at the level of the ego function. More important to this for Lacan right now is that fragmented body part. And he says part of the reason why the baby, in, as they look in the mirror, feels that they are fragmented and discombobulated is because they are. They truly do lack motor skills. They lack motor coordination, as he says on 286. This is stemming, he says, toward the bottom of the page, from the impotence proper to the prematurity of birth. Now, this is something true about humans. We are all born prematurely to such an extent that there's this notion of the fourth trimester, which is the first three months of infancy after birth. And the reason why it's called the fourth trimester is because this kid really should be still in utero. Our species delivers babies prematurely, largely on account of hip size and head growth. So it behooves the species to have the babies delivered early because otherwise you'd have a bunch of dead moms. That's effectively what's going on here. It becomes dangerous, it would be dangerous for a child to remain in utero to 12 months. It'd be dangerous for the mother. It's dangerous enough for the mother to have a baby born at nine months. So the species has evolved in a way that has the babies come out earlier while they're still small enough to squeeze through the birth canal. Now, what that means, though, is that the newborn infant requires an intense amount of care because it's effectively born prematurely. 
before it would really be able. And even after that, it takes years to get a kid to where they're not um, almost completely dependent on the parent. Lacan thinks this is something very important, this prematurity of birth. And what he wants to say about this, it's a very interesting move. You don't see him make this move very often, but he connects it to death. Not life, but death. Because the type of immobility, the type of um, discombobulation, the lack of motor coordination, what we see in early infants, are not exactly from Lacan's point of view bodies on the verge of life, but bodies that are always on the verge of death. Because if you have an infant and you put it in the corner and you walk away, you can be gone for a minute, 10 minutes, an hour, a week, a year. The baby is still going to be there. It can't go anywhere. It lacks complete motor coordination, which is what we know about the human form. In order to be human, you have to be embodied and that body, when it first emerges, requires intense amounts of care from others. Care is the second crucial element that results in a human being. The third element is death. The body you were born into that received copious amounts of care must also perish. All three of these elements have to be in place to be human. What Lacan wants to say is that early, early stage of infancy, this prematurity at birth, is a kind of dying, which is a weird thing to say because you say, oh, this is a child at the beginning of their life. Lacan is saying, yeah, but the beginning of their life is tinged with death. They're always on the verge of dying because they require such amounts of care. Notice how he puts this. Bottom of 286, top of 287. There is, in effect, no other reality behind the new prestige the imaginary function takes on in man than this touch of death whose mark he receives at birth. A touch of death received at birth and experienced at the level of fragmentation. What Lacan refers to going down on 287, toward the end of that paragraph, as a mortal signification. This is going to be important. It's going to be something that is important for the analyst as this essay unfolds. So there's something in here about death, and that's where Lacan wants to turn next. With this mortal reality, he refers to it at the bottom of page 288. And now he's going to connect it to the death instinct, which conditions the illusions of narcissism, as I showed earlier, whose effects can be found anew in a brilliant form in the results considered by Belint to be those of an analysis carried to its full term in an ego-to-ego -ego relationship. Now, we don't need to focus too much on that other stuff, but we do need to focus on this mortal reality. And this shift Lacan is making from the fragmented body that we all experience when we we're initially born and how that body is tinged with death, or as he puts it again on page 287, touched with death, with a mortal signification, the mortal reality 
the reality of mortality, you might say, which is that it will eventually come to an end. So at the beginning of life, human life, there is always the touch of death. Why? Because we know that is where life ends, where it tends. Embodiment, care from others, but no matter how good the care you receive from others is, death still follows. Now, what is the state of death that Lacan is referring to? Well, what is it to be dead? It is to be immobile. You would lack all motor coordination were you dead. It is a state of ultimate repose, passivity, calm. It is almost like a pre-life state. Here, though, we're talking about the post-life experience when you don't just lack a lot of motor coordination as the baby does. Death is like the perfection of the baby. You lack all motor coordination because you're dead. In fact, rigor mortis is what we're talking about here. Even were somebody to animate you and try and move your body, your body would become stiff. That's partly why we call a dead body a stiff or somebody who is like really dull, a stiff. Stiff because they lack all motor coordination. This is the ultimate fragmented body. But noticeably, it's one that is not angsty about it. It is a body also at peace, at rest, which is why we say RIP, rest in peace. The type of rest that we're talking about here is one where all motor coordination has passed, which is also suggested at the level of the child's impotence, their lack of power when they are born. Also noted on page 187, the experiences of impotence that have led to the formation of the ego. That's crucial. At the foundation of the ego's forming, there's not a feeling of power, but weakness, of impotence. In the middle of 287, an imaginary form which bears the seal, here he's talking about the ego, or even superimposed seals of the experiences of impotence by which this form has been shaped in the subject. Not shaping, shaped. The ego is formed out of the experience of impotence. It's a reaction and a defense, maybe even a resistance to the feeling of impotence. What we know though, is that the ego is a resistance. Its function is to resist feelings of impotence, to compensate for them, usually overcompensate for feelings of impotence. So you can let your imagination go with this and you can follow all the traces and language for this kind of stuff, even getting up to notions of ego death. The important thing here though is that the impotence that the ego guards against is always already on our horizon in the form of death. Because the mortal reality of complete lack of motor skill can't be ignored. And yet that's exactly what the ego tries to do. We can talk a lot more about this, but one of the ways that you can see this developing 
is let's say around plastic surgery someone's body starts to age now an aging body is a body that's moving closer to death things that used to work like your knees your back whatever suddenly stop working that well they don't work as well as they used to you get injured and it takes longer to heal ask your parents about this stuff they'll tell you all about this stuff ask any senior citizen and they'll tell you about what the latest ailment is this absolutely is a real phenomenon every time the body breaks down a little bit gets worn out it becomes closer to death and we know that so the ego oftentimes thankfully not all the time in and everybody but some people try and resist this now what's some way what are some ways that an ego might resist the breakdown of the body and thus the trend towards death that is just natural to humans well plastic surgery your face starts to sag it gets a little wrinkly Botox your butt starts to sag gets a little wrinkly implants there are all these ways through cosmetics through plastic surgery that the ego clings to previous versions of ourselves this is also somebody let's say on their dating profile and you go to their page you're checking them out thinking, oh, I like this person they look cute whatever and then you go to meet them and you're like oh my gosh when were those pictures taken because the person I'm seeing now in front of me looks about five or six years older than the person that you're showing me online this is classic ego stuff now notice the image of you looking great that you post on your dating profile that is your ideal ego that's the version of you that you think is great and it is a compensation that the ego maintains for the parts of you that you don't think are great the parts of you that currently look different because you are many years older than when those pictures were taken so you can see the splitting of the self that Lacan is talking about here and the ego's job in compensating for feelings of inferiority of impotence of inadequacy of discombobulation all these feelings of fragmentation at the level of one's body these are great examples of this kind of stuff happening but it all amounts to this it is a resistance to death a resistance to and an attempt to veer off the path of mortality on which we all walk embodiment care from others and no matter how hard you resist death follows so as you're walking around look for people and the things that they are doing to pretend like they're not aging and remember that those are always efforts to stave off death whether it's the plastic surgery or the dyed hair or the incredible cosmetics or the new car the new house the new ex all of these things that people get wrapped up in that their egos get wrapped up in remember this they are defenses against the only thing that necessarily happens in human life, which is that it passes into death. That's where we're going to turn next in this very important move that Lacan makes with the role of the analyst. Okay, we were just talking about death, the biological death, the idea that the human body perishes 
and passes into the earth, this mortal reality known as death. Notice what Lacan does with this theme at the top of page 289. In order for the transference relationship to escape these effects, the analyst would have to strip the narcissistic image of his own ego from all the forms of desire by which the image by which that image has been constituted, reducing it to the only face that sustains it behind their masks, the face of the absolute master, death. The absolute master of mortal reality is death, because it's the one thing that we all do. We can't escape it. And the analyst has a role to play in this. Now let's see, the dots we have going so far are fragmented body, that the baby feels in themselves as they look at an image in the mirror. And Lacan says the fragmented body is touched with death, tinged with death. It has a mortal reality to it because it is so extremely fragile, but also because we know that the end of the line for embodiment is death. And now he's going to say the analyst has a job to do on this theme and should effectively play dead. So what type of a listener are we talking about here? Listening is not a passive act, as we often think of it. But what would it mean to listen as though dead, to live as though dead, even more further than that? Let's see how far Lacan wants to go with this on 289. It is thus clearly here that the analysis of the ego finds its ideal terminus, terminus, and that in which the subject, having refound the origins of his ego in an imaginary regression, comes by the progression of remembering to its end in analysis, namely the subjectification of his death. Lacan is here suggesting that the analyst in playing dead can help the patient or the analyzand subjectify or come to terms with their own mortality. That's what he means when he says subjectification of his death. He's talking about the patient coming to terms with the fact that their life will eventually end. There's a very real sense in which psychoanalysis is about learning how to die. Because once you learn how to die and can imagine that ultimate horizon, you now know how to live more fully. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this. If you imagine yourself on your deathbed, imagine yourself 60 years from now, 40 years from now, 100 years from now, whatever the heck it is, you're at the end of your life and you're looking back on your life, reflecting on all the things that you've done. What up to this point in your life will you remember? Well, you'll probably remember interactions with your parents, positive or negative. You'll probably remember first loves, traveling, trips you've taken, are you gonna remember this lecture? Maybe, probably not though. You're probably not gonna to remember today. Today in particular is probably not gonna be one of those days that you carry with you until your deathbed. You're not gonna look back and think about today. Now, that doesn't mean today doesn't have issues. You might be concerned right now. As I record this lecture, it's February 22nd, 2022. That means we're just about at the end of the month, which means rent is due. You might be sweating your rent payment right now. Now, you know you're going to get it done, but it's going to be tight. 
and you're stressing about it, and you were up late last night, you lost sleep over this. In 60 years, when you're on your deathbed, are you gonna look back and remember the end of February and that rent payment that you almost didn't make? Probably not. So what's the answer? The answer is, if on your deathbed, you're not gonna be tripping about rent that you almost didn't make in February, 2022, don't trip about rent on February 22nd. It'll be fine. This is how it works. Once you have a being towards death, once you imagine yourself on your deathbed, you can look back and determine what's of value and what's not. People on their deathbed, they usually don't look back and wish they had spent more time at the office doing more work. They wish they had spent more time traveling, being with family, taking time to do things that you might now find kind of annoying, like a family trip, like going to visit your relatives and the like. That's the kind of stuff people look back on and value. See, it's tough. The present is always blind to what the future will value, as one of my friends often says. That's an important thing to note. You don't know right now what in 60 years is gonna prove to have been what will have been the most important parts of your life. So this imaginative exercise where you imagine yourself on your deathbed looking back, it helps you figure out how to live a good life today. And that's what's at stake here. By learning how to die, by coming to terms with the ultimate, absolute master that is death, it doesn't mean you live a pointless, morbid life. On the contrary, just the opposite. It's from the vantage point of death that you can truly understand how to live. Because now your priorities are clear. On your deathbed, the rent payment that you know you're going to make, even though it's going to be stressful here in a few days, you're not going to be tripping about that. So don't trip about it now. Focus your energy elsewhere. That is how you live a good life. And this is ultimately what it means to live as though dead. When Zeno went to the oracle and asked, and the oracle said, live as though dead, Zeno thought, ah, that must mean that I should read all the old books. Read books by dead people. Not so. To live as though dead is to live an extremely full life. This is what it means to live one's best life. Is to live it as though dead. As if on your deathbed looking back, you would make some decisions. You see, when you get old, you're not going to be able to climb mountains anymore. Your body just won't do it. Now, if that's the kind of thing that you think you might regret and wish you had done later in life, you better damn well start climbing mountains now while you still have the ability to do it. This is the type of life that is worth living according to Lacan. This is the payoff of all of this work with death. The subjectification of, the, of your death that Lacan talks about on 289 is gonna culminate in a richer life in the meantime. The meantime between psychoanalysis, when you came to terms with your death, 
and the fact of you dying somewhere down the road. The goal here is to live a richer, better, more enjoyment-driven life. And the best way to do that is to come to terms with death. And the best way to come to terms with death, Lacan is here suggesting, is for the analyst to play a very specific part for you. To play dead. Now we're going to see how this unfolds as we read on. We're on page 289, and this is supposed, the paragraph begins, to be the end required of the analyst's ego. But whom we can say, about whom we can say, that he must acknowledge the prestige of but one master, death, in order for life, which he must guide through its so many vicissitudes, to be his friend. In order for life to be your friend, you must acknowledge the prestige of death. You must come to terms with death as your absolute master in order to make life your friend, in order to live an amicable, happy life. This goal does not mean, does not seem beyond human grasp, for it does not imply that for him or for others, death is anything more than an illusion. Notice the word here, prestige, interesting. And it merely satisfies the requirements of his task, like someone like Ferenzi has defined earlier. This imaginary condition can only be brought about nevertheless through an ascesis, that's like intense self-discipline, that is affirmed in a being by following a path along which all objective knowledge is progressively suspended. That's interesting. Objective knowledge is suspended in death. And at the level of death, because nobody knows what that's like. Nobody's lived to tell us what it's like to be dead. This is true because for the subject, the reality of his own death is in no wise an object that can be imagined. You can imagine yourself on your deathbed, but being dead? Man, who knows what that's like? And the analyst can know nothing about it, no more than anyone else, except that he is a being destined to die. The analyst and the analyzand are both beings that are destined to die. The analyst is someone who has come to terms with this and can play a certain part to help you come to terms with it. Thus, assuming he has eliminated all the illusions prestige, of his ego in order to accede to being toward death, no other knowledge, whether immediate or constructed, can be preferred by him to be made a power of, assuming it is not simply abolished thereby. So we're talking about something that is beyond knowledge. And whenever you hear Lacan talking about something other than knowledge, note that he's probably talking about truth. We've been through this. The ego is fascinated by knowledge, especially knowledge of itself. The ego is someone who's always trying to know themselves. That is their highest priority. Knowledge is the priority of the ego. Truth is the priority of the unconscious. The goal is not to be aware of oneself, even though that's very important. The goal is to be aware of all the ways in which you will always be unaware of certain parts of yourself. In other words, to realize that the task of knowing thyself will always remain complete. That knowledge is always buffered by an ignorance that can't be addressed. 
And this ignorance, hold on, because Lacan's going to define it in a very interesting way. We're still on page 289, talking about this analyst who has to play a certain part in relation to death. Thus, he can now respond to the subject from the place he wants to respond from, but he no longer wants anything that determines this place. The place from which the analyst responds is not unlike the place in which the baby found themselves, feeling fragmented, tinged with death, on the verge of death all the time because life was so fragile when you lack all those motor skills. This is the impotence, the prematurity at birth, and the lack of motor coordination that we heard about on pages 286 and 287. This is the place from which the analyst listens and responds to the patient or the analyst's discourse. Scrolling down a little bit on 289, the analyst's approach cannot be left to the indeterminacy of a freedom of indifference, nevertheless. But the usual watchword of benevolent neutrality does not provide sufficient indication here. Lacan is here trying to define a position occupied by the analyst that plays dead, that plays dumb, because in being dead is occupying a space beyond knowledge, a space of ignorance, a space that is especially ignorant relative to the analyzand, who can't bear to remember all the ways in which they are fragmented, incoherent, dependent, and the like. The ego really can't stand that about itself, about the body to which it's attached, that it is mortal. And so it's the job of the analyst to help the ego encounter that. 